You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Eureka, I have found it. That's in English. The term purportedly comes from Archimedes, the Greek mathematician who cried out, Eureka, Eureka, so it's a Greek word, when he determined how much gold was in King Herero's crown. It was some sort of, I don't, it's, you can figure it out, it's the mass and weight and volume, and he figured out how to weigh it, Eureka, it was a great moment for him. MacArthur goes on, he says, yet for James Marshall, who discovered gold at Sutter's Mill in 1848, and many of his contemporaries, the term took on a new meaning. For them, Eureka meant instant riches early retirement, and a life of carefree ease. It's no wonder California, the golden state, includes this term on its official seal along with the picture of a zealous gold miner. It's eureka. It's, it's a Greek word, but we think of it as, as the miner who has found, found gold. Well, in our text to today, Paul begins to examine Abraham's We could say maybe his eureka moment, although not for Abraham, I don't think this particular moment, perhaps, but this eureka moment in terms of righteousness. So did Abraham find a eureka moment? Did he find a righteousness that came by works or a righteousness that came by faith? And if you have not already put your faith in Christ, I pray today would be a a eureka moment to find in Christ alone is my righteousness. So with that in mind, let's come to our text and just work through uh, what we have before us. Let's begin, look again at verse 1. More questions from Paul here. It says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Now, here's where we actually find that word eureka, although you don't have eureka in the English versions before you. My ESV version that I use has the word gained. What shall we say was gained by? By Abraham. That's, that's a tr- one's translation. Um, the NIV has, maybe it's closer to the idea of us, you know, think of Eureka, I found it. Um, the NIV has Abraham discovered. What did Abraham, I think it's discover? The verb itself, it's eurekani, so it kind of sounds like Eureka, but it's, it's got that meaning, to find, to discover, to come upon. And it's behind that, that phrase, Eureka. Paul's asking here, he's taking the argument that we looked at last week, verses 27 through 31, and that there's, there's no reason for boasting when it comes to the righteousness that's by faith. So as a case in point, an example Paul now sets before us, or really the Jewish reader and, and along with him, the church in Rome here, sets before us who? Father Abraham. That's who comes in uh, for Paul here and his example. He's, he's called the, the forefather. One lexicon defines this, this forefather as the primary founder of a family. And so Paul's going back to the founding father of the Hebrew people, to Abraham, which is going to take us where? All the way back to Genesis. This is going back before Daniel, back before Isaiah, before Solomon, before Joshua, all the way back to Abraham. We might ask, does justification by faith go back that far? And what Paul is saying is, absolutely, it goes back. Yes. That's how Abraham was justified. 
And so the question regarding Abraham is this, for the reader, what, was he justified? Was he declared righteous? Was his righteousness based upon his works? We're going to see the Jews thought he was a pretty good guy. Was it based upon that or upon faith? Last week, the exclusion of boasting, it's by faith, it's not by works of the law. Rather, faith upholds the law as we look to Jesus. He's the ultimate and perfect law keeper. And now this week, Paul begins to look at Abraham as a case in point. And so we face, I've already kind of mentioned them, we face two options here, two questions of Abraham. Number one, which is going to cover, we're kind of going to do this a little different this morning, it's going to cover verses two and four. That's kind of option, question number one. Was he justified, and again, pronounced, declared, righteous, was he justified by works? Or option number two, or question number two, verses three and then verse five, was he justified by faith alone? So let's look at these first two verses, verses two and four. I think they're, they're connected together. Four, I think, is kind of helping to explain verse two. If you can follow me, we're going to skip three, and then we'll, we'll come back to three and five, so it'll, it'll help you pay attention as we go through, through this, hopefully. But uh, let's look at verse two then. Start there. For if Abraham was justified by works, here's Paul kind of speaking to that option. Was he justified by works? If he was, then verse 2 says, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So if Abraham is pronounced righteous somehow by works, he has a reason to boast. If, if he did something to earn a righteousness before God, then he could indeed make much of his, his work. As I said, the, it's the Jewish people themselves who looked at Abraham as a model of good, good works. I found this interesting. Um, one commentary, and I, I think others would, would maybe bring this out as well. Doug Moo, I've mentioned him before. It's M-O-O, poor guy. He grew up with the, you know, that name in school, but, but he's great. He's helpful here as we work through Romans. Doug Moo, he brings this out about Abraham and, and how the Jews looked at him. It's, it's a little longer quote. Let me read it to you. Abraham was revered by the Jews as their father, and his life and character were held up as models of God's ways with his people and of true piety. And he goes on to say, in keeping with the nomistic focus, now, I think that's just the law focus of the, the first century Jews, so that's the time of really Christ here. In that first century, there's this focus on the law. In keeping with that, now Doug Moo, Abraham was held up particularly as a model of obedience to God. Like, here's Abraham. His righteousness and mediation of the promise were linked to this obedience. And then he says, it even being argued that he had obeyed the law perfectly before it had been given. Now, the law didn't come till Moses, Abraham's before that, but even looking back and saying, well, he, even before the law was there, Abraham obeyed it perfectly. If you know something, a few things of Abraham's life, you know he didn't do it perfectly, but that's how he was looked on. So the Jewish person would want to exalt Abraham's character. Now, I think that's really helpful as we come to this passage and what's Paul now questioning. He's questioning, well, did this, did this bring his righteousness? He's going to challenge this belief that, that through the works, one might be justified. And he's going to use this father Abraham, to, to show if father Abraham can't boast in his works, then neither can anyone else. 
Thus all men, even Abraham, all stand before God. As Paul has said earlier, every mouth is stopped. Everyone is held accountable for their sin. Okay, so instead of going right to verse 3, that's kind of verse 2. Was he justified? He's got something to boast about, but not before God. Okay, Paul's vision here. What, what's the standing before God? There's no boast for Abraham of works before God. Now look at verse, um, look at verse 4. Kind of a parallel state. I think it's kind of an explanation here of verse 2. So just jump over. Let's look at verse 4. Was Abraham justified by works? Verse 4, explanation. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his, as his due. Paul's explaining, he's pointing out, he's using illustrations for us, this concept of working and wages. There's something that is earned, and therefore it's something that one could boast in. It's, it's obviously, it's not a, not a gift. The worker deserves the wages. He's earned it. It's, it's due for the work that is performed. If you put in so much effort, you get the wages, and they're rightly earned for that effort. It's what's owed to you. And so the temptation in any religion is to work, to earn. Well, if I have to work to get a paycheck, if I have to work to earn this, then I must have to work to earn some sort of righteous standing before a holy God. But this is set against the word, and and maybe I read over it quickly. It's set against the word gift here. You see it there, uh, I don't know, midway towards the end of verse 4. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift comes from the word charis. Wages are not counted as a gift, or, or that, that word, I think, grace, comes also from this word, gift, grace. A gift to be a gift, or grace to be grace. It's unearned. It's, un, it's unmerited. We used that illustration last couple of weeks ago of Santa Claus, and it, it just, it's just such a wrong impression of you get gifts from Santa Claus if you're naughty or nice, and that determines your, it's not a gift. It's something you earned from Santa Claus. It's like a wage. The gift is unearned. Grace is unmerited, unearned. And Paul is going to argue that Abraham did not earn righteousness. It was not his due for good works. It was a gift that comes by faith in the Lord. Leon Morris makes an important distinction here on on working and the worker that deserves a wage and the one who trusts in God. I think this is helpful. He says this, the contrast is not between the worker and the non-worker. He says this in parentheses. Paul is not canonizing laziness. What Paul is saying is just don't, don't do anything. Just sit down. The less you work, the better it is. He's not saying that in particular. Morris goes on to say, the contrast is between the one, hear this, between the one who trusts in his works and the one who trusts in God. That's the distinction. The trusting person does not stand before God in the capacity of a paid laborer receiving his due for work done, but as a believer. He has no good works to plead, none. That's what Morris states here. It's a statement to our righteousness before God. Is it it wages due us? For obedience, or is it by faith? If Abraham was justified by something he had done, he's got some reason to boast. 
but not before God. And so we come to verse 3. This is Paul. In Paul's sermon here, this is Paul's main text, and it's verse 3. Another question. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, just note this before we get to this verse. Where does Paul go for arguments? Scripture. In particular, the Old Testament. It's going to be, we're going to look at it in a minute, Genesis 15. It, this is not Paul's, just his opinion. This, I think this is how it should work. I'm trying to figure it out. He said, no, Scripture backs this up. It's not his opinion on boasting. It's what Scripture teaches. And it teaches it where? We're going to go to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis. Righteousness by faith, this sola fide, this faith alone that we talked about of the Reformation, is not something the Reformation some 500 plus years ago came up with. It's, it's not from Luther. It's not from Calvin. It's not from Augustine, even earlier. It's not even from Paul himself. It actually goes back further than all these. All the way back to Genesis. So, let's go there. Let's go where Paul goes to Genesis chapter 15. Only go a couple spots, but just to Genesis 15. Head here, and we're going to read a little bit of the context around uh, this particular passage that Paul is quoting from in our Romans uh, chapter 4, verse 3. And so here, I know we're just kind of jumping right into Genesis. Here we meet Abraham, although at the time he's, this is Abram. I'm just going to call him Abraham for the sake of simplicity and kind of what Paul uses. God, God has already called out Abraham and his family from, from, the, from the east. From a, and actually, Joshua talks about this, a family of idolaters. This is interesting. It's not, not even that Abraham came from a, a pious, God-fearing family. He came from a family of idolaters. That's Joshua 24. Uh, I don't remember the verse if you want to look that up later. But here's Abraham now. As we come to chapter 15, he's, I, know he's, I don't know exactly the age right here. He's at, he's at least past the age of 75. He's received the word of the Lord, the word of God, that his offspring is going to inhabit uh, this land, this land of Canaan that we looked at in, in the books of Joshua and Judges, the land of promise. And yet here in Genesis 15, Abraham remains childless. And so let's read, our, our verse is going to come at verse 6, but let's read the starting in chapter 15, verse 1, and coming up to that. So it says this, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, or Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Verse 6, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Though Abraham be childless, God's promise was numerous offspring. 
a, a very real, at this age, a very real impossibility. And Abraham's reaction to this promise, verse 6, he believed faith. He believed the promise of God. Really, I think he believed the Lord. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Tom Schreiner notes this regarding this idea of faith and then the, the impossibilities that faith trusts God for, like, like children to this elderly couple. He says this, Faith doesn't turn a blind eye toward human weakness. It faces the facts and acknowledges that, humanly speaking, the fulfillment of the promise is impossible. Faith puts its hope in God instead of the human subject. Indeed, faith glorifies and honors God, for it confesses that God can do what He has promised. That's faith. Faith believes beyond what looks possible. Now, just a side note, I think, because many can use this language of faith and then, and then kind of get sidetracked side to connecting faith to, well, enough faith and you're going to get material, material wealth and, and prosper and your health. And if you just have enough faith and begins, faith begins to just look at faith and these impossible things. There is some truth in that we must trust God for these things. Whatever He gives, Thy will be done. Whatever the birds of the air, they not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. We can trust the Lord. I don't think it's different than putting faith for that new car tomorrow and just get some faith going. And, and there's plenty of those guys out there on TV or wherever they are. What we want to come away with here is the emphasis. What is truly impossible? It's not wealth and, and all that. It's, it's this question, how can a holy God justify the ungodly, the unrighteous? That's, how does that happen? That's the impossibility. And it's by faith in Jesus. That's what we've been seeing in Romans. Which presents a question for us here in Genesis, at least for me, maybe it's yours. Doesn't, doesn't true faith then call for faith in in Jesus. And, and Mike, I'm, I'm reading verse 6, and I, I don't read about Jesus. How is Abraham counted righteous? With Does it seem like kind of a general faith here? He's just kind of got, you just have faith, and that's righteousness, or what, what's going on here? Did Abraham look to Jesus? It might be the, the more straight question. And it can puzzle us. I think there's a couple answers. I'm just going to use the best one that I, that I found, and... and I love it, because where does it come from? Jesus himself. When you get an answer from Jesus, that's, that's where it, not that he, spoke, he speaks in his words. So, we're, we're in Genesis 15. Why don't you head with me to John 8? We're going to work our way back to Romans now. Kind of saw the context of Genesis 15. Look at John 8, 56. It's, it's worth just seeing this. What, what did Abraham see? Now, you could, I think you could make some arguments for this idea of offspring and even the promise that goes back to Genesis 3, uh, 15 and the, the seed of the woman that would bruise the head or crush the head of, of Satan. And so Abraham looked towards maybe that offspring and Sarah would have offspring and, and there was a, a hazy promise there. I think that's because you've got the Old Testament gospel already, already further back than Abraham himself back in chapter 3. And what else is in chapter 3? The fall. So there's the gospel. What did Abraham see well, you come to John 8, 
56, and Jesus is speaking to Jews. They're accusing Jesus of having a demon. And like, are you claiming yourself to be greater than Abraham? Jesus says in verse 56, you see it in your text? John 8, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. D.A. Carson notes here on this text in particular, he says the fact remains that Jesus identifies the ultimate fulfillment of all Abraham's hopes and joys with his own person and work. Now, I, I don't know beyond this, I don't know all the ins and outs, all the, well, how is this and how did Abraham see Somehow, we must say, by God's grace, for that is how faith comes, by His grace, Abraham, some, as hazy as it might have been, looked towards Christ. And this faith is credited with righteousness. All right, maybe that's helpful for that question. Head back then to Romans 4, and let's look at verse 5. So just now make your way back to Romans chapter 4. And as we did, we looked at verse 3. Now we're kind of skipping over 4 into 5, but I'm just going to start at 4 because it helps make sense. So Romans 4, verse 4. Look there as we go into verse 5. Now to the one who works, we already looked at this, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Again, verse 4, pointing out wages, those are not a gift, they're due one's work. But verse 5, clearly one who does not work, that is work for righteousness, but believes is counted righteousness, and counted as righteousness. And so you've got that word counted here. We've, I think we've already seen it twice. We're going to see it more here. I think it's maybe some, I believe eight times even in verses 1 through 12 kind of a mathematical, obviously, counting, one, two, three, four, uh, counting, mathematical, an accounting type term. Again, set against the backdrop of verse 4, it's what helps us. So verse 4, the worker's wages are, and there's our word, they're counted or they're credited to one's account. The wages are counted. Thus, one's belief in God is then counted, credited, not as a work. That's the clear distinction but as a gift. And they're counted because it looks towards Christ. Our righteousness that is by faith, it runs through, it looks upon Christ and His righteousness, His redemption, His propitiation that we looked at the other week from Romans chapter 3. His work on that cross is credited to our account, received by faith. The opposite of works. And so we come to verses 6 through 8. And this is where we're going to close. This just forms, I think, just a great conclusion to this passage and, and even for our morning together. We're going to come back, verses 9 through 12, next week out of the lake. And here Paul brings in David. We've got Father Abraham. We've got King David, the, this power-hitting duo to make a point. Look at verses 6 through 8 again. 
Faith is counted as righteous, verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Paul appealed to the law. If you think of the, the division of the Old Testament divided in, short, in Jewish shorthand of the law and the prophets, Paul appeals to the law, the first five books, the Torah. Specifically, we looked at Genesis 15, the law, Abraham. Here, he heads to David, and this quoting, we won't go there um, here. You can look it up. It's, from Psalm, it's right out of Psalm 32, part of the prophets. And I wonder here, again, if Paul, is he pointing to, look, look, believer, this righteousness that comes by faith, the law and the prophets, these two divisions of the whole Old Testament point right to this. Look at this. They bear witness to a righteousness of God that comes by faith. This Bible, these ancient words are amazing. It's made up. There's multiple books, all sorts of genres within the book, all sorts of even history and the years that it encompasses. But it's a whole story, and it culminates in the testimony of Jesus. If you were reading through Revelation this week, Revelation 19.10, says the testimony of Jesus is the, the spirit of prophecy. It's all pointing to Christ. So Paul can go back to the Old Testament and use this. Well, the blessing here in verses 6 through 8, it's, it's, it's laid out, and essentially I just, I'll count them as four descriptions here. We'll just go through these briefly. Description number one comes from verse six. It says the blessing, the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. I think this is the main overarching principle. That's what, what Paul's after here. The one whom God counts righteous apart from works is blessed. Description number two, the first part of verse seven. Blessed there. Blessed are those whose Lawless deeds are forgiven. And so this guilt, have you ever done a lawless deed? You have not followed the law. That guilt that comes from that lawless deed, it is in Christ through faith forgiven. The blessed man is free from guilt. Description number three comes from the second part of verse seven. You've kind of got this, maybe it looks like in a poetry form, where it says, Essentially, blessed are those whose sins are covered. It's, it's another way of saying they're forgiven. It's kind of that poetic way to parallel, say the same thing. Can I have, I think, the idea, what I found is the idea of being put out of sight. Now, think about this. The God who sees everything, he sees all. Those sins that are most definitely before God, who sees every one of them. He's seen your sins from this morning, from yesterday, from this past week alone. They're covered. They're put out of sight in a way of speaking. That's a blessing. And then number four, description number four really from verse eight. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The, the language here that Paul is using, it's emphatic. This will not, it's emphatic. No, it won't. The Lord will not, if you could put an underline there, he will not 
count his sin. It won't happen. Often, and and rightly, we equate blessedness with a lot of things. Life is going well. I've got so many kids or so much money or I've got good health. These are These are blessings. Father's Day, we're thinking of dads here. We are blessed. Psalm 127.5 says, Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with children. That's a blessing. So there's a blessing to fatherhood. But dads and everybody else, let's not miss this greatest blessing. I think here it would be in the vein, this thought that Jesus tells. Remember the 72 who went on the mission? They returned afterwards. They were overjoyed. Jesus, the demons, they're... They're subject to us in your name. Look at what happened. We had a blessed trip. Remember what Jesus tells them? He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Psalm 32, which Paul's quoting here, speaks of the truly blessed man. And it has nothing to do with, and we recognize blessings of family, Success at your job, your fortunes, on and on and on. The blessed man has everything to do with him whom the Lord will not count his sin. Other blessings will come. Let us not miss that our relationship via faith in Christ is restored to God. That this God who made heaven and earth, we can speak to him right now. We can be comforted. We can read His words as promises to us who are His children in Christ. What's the eureka moment for us today? What have you found? Hopefully you found your works to be wanting. Hopefully you see the futility of your work to merit a righteous standing before a holy God. That's, I think, the point where God brings us to see him. When we see my works cannot measure up. If God is holy, and he is, my works fail before him. So consider the testimony of the law, the prophets. Works are not bad in and of themselves. Good works are that. They are good. What is it? It's the reliance upon them. The confidence, as that one quote said, in in what you've done to merit and earn a righteousness before God. The Bible's message, cover to cover, is that of being counted righteous not by works but by faith. And a faith that will produce and is active and will produce works. But it's faith. Faith in the object of our faith, the one who satisfied the wrath of God on the cross, on our behalf, that we might be counted righteous based upon his works. May we, like Abraham, rejoice. He rejoiced to see my day. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be like Abraham in that sense in which Jesus says he rejoiced to see my day. He rejoiced, he saw it, and he was glad. Lord, there are a million other things that we are hoping for that will make us glad. They are rubbish compared to knowing you. 
Lord, may we see on this Father's Day and every day till we rejoice with you for all the days of eternity, the glories of a righteousness and, and a grace counted to us, not by earning it, not as a wage that is due us for some great piety in our own, but based on Christ. May you indeed, as John the Baptist says, may Jesus you increase and may we decrease. And may in all this you get the glory. We pray in your name. Amen. You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota. 